You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you will hear from ICP leadership and police leaders across the globe, sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. Good morning. My name is David Shipley, a retired Colorado Sheriff's Office commander and the executive director of the Colorado Information Sharing Consortium. Welcome back to the ICP Sieges Policy Modernization Podcast Series. As you know, the FBI Sieges Policy is changing to meet modern challenges impacting American public safety entities like yours. Aided by the Advisory Policy Board, or APB, which is comprised of public safety executives from around the country, the Sieges Division of the FBI has done its level best to improve Sieges Policy intended to help protect all criminal justice data nationwide and beyond. We want to make sure everyone has the information they will need to implement the new policies and not be left in the dark. Besides, you know what they say about cliffhangers. Today, we present the second of at least six IACP-endorsed Ask the Expert podcasts that will cover one of five Sieges Policy primary security control groups and their key subtopics from the first two uh, series of revisions. I'd like to welcome four leaders ready to help clarify more key changes in the Sieges policy. With us today are, from the athens Clark County Police Department in Georgia, Deputy Chief Keith Kelly, co-vice chair of the LEIT Sieges Policy Modernization Working Group, and an esteemed member of the FBI APB. Welcome to the podcast once again, sir. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. We would like today to welcome our podcast producer, Jim Emerson. Jim is the vice president at the National White Collar Crime Center, NW3C. He is also the chairman of the IACP Computer Crime and Digital Evidence Committee and the co-chair of the IACP Sieges Security Policy Modernization Working Group. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Shib. Absolutely. Our next returning panelist is the Sieges Information Security Officer and Sieges Compliance Supervisor for the Kentucky State Police, Mrs. Erin Marie Oliver. Great to have you back, Erin. Thank you. It's great to be here. And once again, we're delighted to welcome Chris Weatherly, a nearly 30-year veteran of FBI service, now serving as the Bureau's outstanding Sieges Division Information Security Officer. Hey, Chris, you know, we, we listen to that title and you get it. You know, it's pretty impressive. Um, being an accomplished musician, though, is where I kind of want to go today. Okay. Um, have you heard about the two windmills standing in a wind farm discussing music? I have one asked the other. He, he asked the other, what's your favorite kind? And the other replied, I'm a big metal fan. <laughs> no, no doubt. Yes. <laughs> well, now that we have a good atmosphere to start our discussion, how about we get started? Panelists and viewers, today we'll discuss the Sieges policy updates in the Security Control Group Identification and Authorization. Here we go. Policy IA1 requires agencies to develop, document, and disseminate the following authorized personnel. Policy addressing purpose, scope, roles, responsibilities, management commitment, coordination among organizational entities, and compliance that is consistent with applicable laws, executive orders, directives, regulations, policies, standards, and guidelines, along with procedures that facilitate implementation of this policy and its associated controls. Next, this is all a lot, 
It directs designation of an individual to manage the development, documentation, and dissemination of the identification and authorization policy and procedures. This person will also be required to review and update the policy and procedures annually, and also update following any security incidents involving unauthorized access to CJI or systems used to process or store or transmit CJI. So the question, what is the likelihood of one-time or reoccurring costs associated with implementing and managing these requirements? And if probable, would these be personnel, vendor, or other contracted costs? I think this is a great question, Ship, and I'll say I, I believe that organizations need to have technical resources to maintain these systems. I think in many ways, some of this involves an individual who controls access to the networks, and depending on specific agency, this may be absorbed within individuals and resources that are already present. Keith, I'm going to add in follow-up that I think it's really important that agencies consider this an extension of their strategic planning. Uh, network and enterprise, you know, growth in, in the, the average agency nowadays is expanding rapidly. Lots of interconnected technologies and lots of need and desire to exploit data on, on a large scale. Uh, all of that adds complexity to this discussion and needs to be part of the planning. So who should be tasked with writing, administering, and maintaining these policies and procedures in your view? So Ship, from the, from the policy perspective, uh, we, we state that we designate an individual with security responsibilities. So this is going to be your either your state ISO, this could be your uh, a lasso uh, at, the, at the local agency, but definitely it needs to employ, uh, you know, subject matter experts uh, in, in developing these. Is that similar that. in Kentucky, Erin? Yeah, I mean, the FBI, you know, sets the bar and we go a little bit stricter than that in our state. Um, it doesn't mean that other states can't or don't. Um, just that's from our perspective here in Kentucky is there are some things that we're stricter on, but we do have our own policy that mirrors the FBI CJ security policy. And some of those standards are a little higher and we implemented a our own um, documented policy that is a sample policy that we give out to local agencies that they can use not just for themselves but also for their vendor partners. And that's a great point as well, Ship. You know, the question was one time or recurring costs associated with implementing and managing these identification and authentication requirements. Um, you know, I, I believe there would there will be reoccurring costs with this because the authenticators will eventually, um, you know, be overcome by time, right? And we'll have to refresh those things. And and it will apply to personnel. It will apply to vendors or contractors who have that unescorted access to unencrypted CJI. I was just going to say I'd also recommend that the agency have a process to involve system users. Uh, so that they gain a level of understanding and ultimate acceptance of the policies and procedures. It's important that they understand it as a way to push this out and uh, continue to move it forward. Thank you for that, Chief, because we certainly want to understand how this impacts workflow, officer safety, uh, everything that we can, can concern, we get concerned about, um, you know, day to day. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. So that that pretty much covers our next question, which was how does division or delegation of service and function 
to a supporting technology provider or vendor impact this requirement? It sounds like you've already addressed that. So here's another good question that I think the folks want to hear the answer to anyway. Will the FBI or another entity provide model policies? I've already heard some of you make some allusion to it. Can you fill them in further? Yeah. Um, so this is Chris with the um, with the Sieges Division. Um, we have um, gathered a, a, um, a collection of model policies for all of the 18 security control families that we're modernizing. And we can make those uh, available um, at any time. Uh, we do plan to put them in a, a repository that's publicly available. So, uh, but if someone hearing this podcast wants to reach out to ISO at FBI.gov and request those uh, those policies, we can definitely send those out. Outstanding. And Aaron, you said you had some policies as well in Kentucky. We do, and and those are available. Uh, we have shared some of our policies with other states. Um, or local entities that were interested or vendors that were interested in implementing some of that information. We are updating those with the 18 control uh, families um, from our recent FBI audit. They were gracious to share some of those policies that we needed to, you know, some direction on updating our current policies. So we're working on those, but um, we we do share those with the locals if they ask and they can have those that are readily available. Chip, if I could add something right there, I always talk about inheriting controls. Um, when it comes to policies, if if your state level CSA, your CGIS systems agency has an identification authentication policy, perhaps look at that. Maybe you can inherit that, right? You wouldn't have to create your own policy. Now, you may need your own procedures to meet that policy, but inherit what you can. Definitely takes, you know, less of the, definitely takes some of that burden off of the of the local entities. And Ship, I, Ship, I just want to emphasize what Chris just said about procedures, because one of the things this working group, you know, found out early on in our work here was that every every agency has got a unique context. So even though you may be uh, uh, you may benefit from inheriting policy, you want to apply that locally. You want to make sure that that complies and comports with state requirements as well as your specific situation. Well, I have to say, I like the creative use of the word inherit. Uh, it sounds better than than uh, steel. So <laughs> plagiarism, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I thought I'd just change the name. Word, hey. <laughs> um, it's it's easier to manage and it's easier to adjust something that exists than create it out of thin air. That's what you're saying. Am I right? Okay. <laughs> now, well, that's a fun one there. Let's get a <laughs> let's look a little bit deeper. In policy 5.6 IA-2, parentheses 2, it says all agency must implement multi-factor authentication, or MFA, used to be known as advanced authentication, for access to non-privileged accounts. So should agencies expect reoccurring costs associated with implementing and maintaining contemporary multi-factor authentication options or even contract modifications. Yeah, I think we uh, I think we've touched on this before. Definitely, there will be some some costs, uh, recurring costs with this. As I said, the authenticators, um, you know, some of them expire or or need to be renewed. So that would be a service level that you would have to to maintain. And and as um, 
um, as Mr. Emerson was saying earlier, you know, that needs to be a part of their strategic planning into their contracts and whatnot. I'll, I'll let him expand on that if he wants. Uh, I think, Chris, you, you make a wonderful point about uh, not underestimating uh, existing contracts and where they need to go to take us into the implementation of these control group changes. Uh, it's something that the agency has to account for, not only on the IT side of the of the ledger, but also with regard to operations and approach that from a realistic perspective. Aaron, you, in our private discussions as we were getting ready for the podcast, you were talking about multi-factor authentication really being identified differently in Kentucky uh, in a way that I think resonates. Could you share that? Well, here in Kentucky, we call it the MFC, and that's multi-factor cost. <laughs> it's not the multi-factor authentication, it's the multi-factor cost. Um, a lot of agencies, you know, I know are kind of freaked out and how they're going to be able to comply. And, you know, it's not just them. We let them know in, on a large scale that this is, you know, something that's affecting us. And, you know, everybody's got a budget, obviously, during a state audit, FBI audit, everybody takes into accountability that, you know, there's a cost and what that cost looks like. And, you know, something that is going to be stable and something that, you know, years down the road, we're like, are we going to have to renegotiate that cost? Or is that that vendor or is that um application going to go completely away? Are we going to have to pay for a brand new application for a new authentication program? What's that cost look like? And it resonates with people here. Um, a lot of people don't know what the authentication piece really means. So when you just throw the word cost out there to them, so we, we call it the MFC, you know, kind of like an MMA fight, you know, so um, <laughs> you're, you're fighting with, you know, whoever is financially in charge of, you know, giving you the funding, you know, you're at their mercy, but you want them to understand we can't lose these accesses because you, you're subject to losing the access if you can't be compliant with it. And, you know, you're leaving not just yourself vulnerable, but the entire state vulnerable to, you know, attacks and ransomwares and, you know, even PII and people's information being, you know, stolen and their identities. Um, and so I think once you put that into perspective, a lot of people don't really look at the cost as much, you know, that, okay, well, it's going to cost us a whole lot more if we lose this. You know, you're talking about people's lives, you know, officer safety, public safety, that's our number one goal here. So, you know, it's it's very, um, if you can use something in in a term that people understand and talk to them on a lower level sometimes of understanding, okay, this just worry about the cost. The funding people don't care about authentication. They just they just worry about what the cost is. So Keith, that brought us back to our discussion you you had about security. Absolutely. I was just going to add that you know many of the same concerns of cost, but we also want to ensure that we have a solution that's effective and able to protect access to our systems and the users uh, within them. Which brings us to users, Jen. I think you noted earlier about uh, user defense. Well, I think, Chip, that uh, we shouldn't underestimate the fact that certain users in every organization require a disproportionate amount of help desk support. And that's part of managing what you do for all the right reasons. Uh, and so that has to be approached and calculated uh, to, to have a good picture of what the cost really is. Let me let me ask a question that I that I think we need some clarification on uh, with regard to privileged or non-privileged access. 
how, how could, should, or will public safety agencies uh, manage non-privileged access to include vendor maintenance and service? Chip, I would counter, uh, this is Chris from the FBI, I would counter that those who have uh, vendor maintenance, uh, you know, even be it local, be it remote, whatever, they they have uh, privileged access, right? It's not it's not non-privileged access. A non-privileged access user is some a general user, right? Your dispatchers and whoever's signing into the system to use the system. But this is definitely um, uh, I would consider them privileged users. And the policy states in IA two uh, one and two that no matter who you are, where you are, privileged non-privileged multi-factor authentication is, is is applicable here chris i've heard you speak publicly a couple of times about who controls encryption keys uh versus who has access to unencrypted cji uh does that apply to what you just said uh you know just to kind of clarify <clears throat> so when we when we talk about encryption keys it's all about primarily when we move criminal justice information to an offsite location. Maybe it's it, maybe it's into a cloud or something like that, right? We want to make sure that the cloud service personnel does not have unescorted access to unencrypted CGI. We want the agency to, to control those encryption keys, to control logical access into that infrastructure as a service. Definitely when we, when we move into software as a service, you now have someone who is assisting the agency uh, with you know software they are more than likely to have unescorted access to unencrypted CGI. So you want to make sure that you process them accordingly. Fingerprint-based background check, awareness training, um, before they have access to that, unescorted access to that unencrypted CGI. So I can I encapsulate this conversation, especially on MFA and multi-factor authentication, as being sort of like the, the uh, old Uncle Sam wants you poster. Uh, MFA applies to you and to everybody that it points at. Good, good. Well, that all makes sense. Thank you. Um, in, in the time we have left, let's continue to talk uh, systems authentication, policy 5.6 IA-3. That mandates that agencies uniquely identify and authenticate agency devices before establishing all remote and network connections. In the instance of local connection, the device must be approved by the agency and the device must be identified and authenticated prior to connection to an agency asset. So the question becomes, how can agencies constantly maintain the approval lists given the rapid turnover in device inventory? Chip, I'm just going to jump in real quick to say this is an extension of the planning process again. Uh, it's something that an agency has to plan for in terms of both policy and compliance. And I think that our panelists are probably well suited to discuss how that occurs today in their agencies. Ethan, well, no. uh, I'm sorry, Aaron. Sorry, I was going to say um, here in Kentucky, you know, we use the different certificates and IP address lockdowns um, and use an example of, you know, having NCIC access on a laptop that is limited to an IP address in a secured location so that they can't use the NCIC access outside of the secured location. You know, we've had recently somebody that called and said that they couldn't access it, it corrupted their whole computer. They stated that they couldn't access anything on their device. And what it was, they couldn't access the 
the CGIS piece, they couldn't get through that portal. So what it was is they were limited to the IP address that they were locked down to that we configure on our stations um, that we're in charge of. So we keep track of all of those personnel, all of their IP addresses. And all it was is she took it into a dispatch center uh, room which was just outside of her office and she couldn't get logged in. But when she took it back into her office, she was able to log in because that's where the IP address is locked down to. So I think that's a good example of how that could be used. I'll add in my agency, we have issues where uh, occasionally mobile data terminals go down um, and we actually keep a, a series of computers sitting in a hot backup status. They're kept in a secure location, but they can be rapidly deployed. You know, and I'll just add when that computer goes down, it, it affects the a lot of things for that officer, including their ability to write reports, their location services, um, some safety uh, features that are available. So in addition to these critical services we're talking to, there's a lot more that goes into it and being able to quickly pivot uh, when a failure occurs is important. Chip, that's a great point that the chief makes there. Um, we're, we're specifically talking about identification and authentication today. But the, the siege of security policy is a holistic security policy, right? And some of the things that, that Chief Kelly was bringing them up, you know, uh, bleeds into some other families. And you'll see related controls within the siege of security policy. But, but uh, you know, what's related to what Chief Kelly was talking about is, is you know, what, what is your recovery time objective? What is your recovery point objective? How much can you afford to be down? How, how you know, how far back do you need to conduct, uh, conduct backups of your information system? Do you need to, as Chief Kelly has, do you need... X number of MDTs on the shelf ready to go, right? Uh, and that's all a part of your business impact assessment that, that agencies will need to do. How long can I afford to be out of the mission before I need that, you know, I need to get back into the game? I had heard uh, Jim comment earlier about um, exigent change and preparing for that. Um, could you expand on that a bit, Jim? Ship, I think that's exactly what Chief Kelly was just talking about, which is if it's a graveyard shift and an MDT dies, is there a plan for that? I mean, it's obviously not appropriate for somebody to bring an, an unauthorized device into that scenario just to solve an operational problem. So do you suffer operationally? If you, you have to have a plan for that. And, and I think his illustration was a solid one in terms of how that agency planned for that type of eventuality. Okay, let me let me you know looking at the time, I want to try and hit at least one more question, so that we can uh, fill this and and get ready for our next opportunity. Um, what steps are adequate then for device identification? Chip, from a from a policy perspective, um, agencies can use. We are talking about agency managed devices here, so. Agencies can use the certain things like as the media access control or the MAC address of the, of the device. Um, as Aaron has illustrated, you can use um, IP addresses for that device authentication. There's um, multiple ways, and, and you'll find this in the discussion of um, identification and authentication control number three, IE3, where it talks about device identification and authentication. There's numerous ways that you can identify those devices. Very good, very good. So that that helps cover. Maybe we can squeeze one more in. You think? Um, if we talk five six IA five, it it includes mandates for managing a wide array of system authenticators. 
Can you help our listeners anticipate where the bulk of agency costs will attach when implementing this policy? So the the officers, the deputies, the troopers, the human capital, which is each and every agency, um, they really need to not only understand what's happening here, they need to understand at a level that causes them to buy in, to really accept that 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 Uncle Sam finger pointing at them that you <laughs> mentioned earlier. Uh, and so training uh, is is something that's hi- highly necessary at the front end of any implementation like this or major change. And, and there's cost associated with that. Uh, most agencies have limited training hours as it is, lots of extra requirements imposed upon them. And so this is something that uh, should not be weighted to plan for. This is something that needs to be figured in to the, the overall agency strategy and use of personnel uh, early on and in the most efficient way possible. Hey, Ship, this is Chris. I, great, Jim, that was a great uh, illustration there. Um, something I hear a lot, I talk with a lot of states across the nation, and something I hear a lot is, how are we going to meet all of IA5? And I want to be very clear here. It's not all of IA5, and, and I'll give my standard answer that I give to a lot of questions. It depends, right? It depends on what type of authenticators you're going to be using. Um, and, and so agencies need to focus on hey, we're going to be using a memorized secret plus one of these other authenticators that, you know, proves possession. And that's the requirement you need to be focusing on. Do not get into the, I need to meet all of IE5, just what, um, just the authenticators that you're actually going to be using. Okay, well, we come to the to the end of our time together. Uh, please let me uh, thank you. Uh, for all your efforts. We, today, we thoroughly covered IA1, relating costs for creating and maintaining policies and procedures. We covered 5.6 IA2, the multi-factor authentication piece, um, with related to issues for people. And then 5.6 IA3 and 5, talking about devices um, and, and their anticipated costs. And, and I, I also picked up something else that I've got pretty clear. Uh, it depends when we talk about how. <laughs> So let me extend a sincere thank you to our expert guests, Chris Weatherly, Jim Emerson, and uh, Aaron Oliver, and of course, Keith Kelly. Listeners, please leave a review and questions, then join our next podcast, TBA in 2024, where the panel will continue to address the key updates in the identification and authorization control group portion of the CEGIS policy. Until next time, may the face of every good news and the back of every bad news be toward us all.